Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, and lessons therein. And we tend to like to do that in the world of sports, of music, of comedy, of books, authors, pastors, leaders, people with great testimonies, goes on and on and on. And for the first time ever, this is so good to say, I'm actually joined by a guy who probably loves to say, it's great to be a Tennessee Vol. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping you're like starting that. off on a good note, my yeah. man. He loves Rocky Top. He loves orange and white end zones. He loves the, uh, was that 2000, 2001 national championship football team with T. Martin. I've never had a Tennessee volunteer. 98, 98. 98, yes. I was two, yeah. years, two or three years early. But uh, <laughs> Chris Burke from Tennessee baseball world, played several years in uh, Major League Baseball, Padres, Astros, am I going to forget, Diamondbacks. Signed mm-hmm. actually with the Reds briefly, but then something happened. Is that right? That was my last year playing was with the Reds. Yeah, something happened as in I walked away. So yeah. <laughs> That's something happened. I thought was there an injury involved in that or something? No, 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 no. Actually, I, I played uh three months with the triple A team, which is based here in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that was kind of a God way that that ended my career. I, I was being very prayerful that that God would make it clear to me whether I was supposed to keep playing or not. And I kind of grown discontent with playing. And so I was I was really ready to move on, but I couldn't, I just couldn't quit. Couldn't bring myself to quit. And what was funny is I started playing really, really well. And so I was thinking, oh, okay, well, here's, here's my sign. I'm supposed to keep playing this game for a while. And then the Reds signed Gary Matthews Jr., who had been in the big leagues for a very long time, but he had been struggling. And so they signed him to a triple A contract. And um, I was playing center field at the time in triple A, and he was a world-class center fielder. And so they told me they were going to let me go. And uh, I said, well, I think that's the sign I was looking for. So that's very helpful. You let me go and I don't have to quit and I'm going to move on and do something different. And so I bawled my eyes out on the curb in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, telling my old man that it was over and telling my wife I was coming home. And the rest is uh, a new chapter in my life that I'm I'm still, I'm God's still writing, I should say. Yeah. Well, let's jump into that real quick, the Norfolk and then uh, Louisville and all that with ballparks. So I grew up, you know, baseball fan, live in Springfield, Ohio, so not far from where the Reds are. And obviously me growing up, the Reds are the big red machine and all that kind of stuff. But if I have my choice today to go to any baseball game, all things being equal, it's not the World Series, it's just a game. I love minor league ballparks. And mm. I've argued that I think maybe the best one is in your neck of the woods in Louisville. So what, what's your take on uh, good minor league baseball parks? Well, it's incredible how minor league baseball has grown even in the 23 years that I've been associated with professional baseball. You know, when I first signed and and got drafted in 2001, there has been a, that was kind of the start of makeovers all over this country and triple A ballparks and triple A baseball, double A baseball, even heck there's some A ball, there's some 
independent leagues that are making a pretty good living with non-major league professional baseball. And certainly the you know Slugger Field here in Louisville is is towards the top of that list. I played at a place in Round Rock, Texas, and actually called some games there last weekend that is one of the best in the country. And then just yesterday, I was calling Georgia, Georgia Tech in um, Cool Ray Field in Gwinnett, Georgia, which is where the Gwinnett Stripers play, which is the AAA team of the Atlanta Braves. And man, it is it is um, there. There's all kind of all the makings of the major league amenities as far as their suites and there's really good food and they put on a good show, but it's still, you can get much closer to the players. Um, It still has a minor league feel. So I could see why you would say something like that because there, you kind of get the best of both worlds in triple a baseball. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So, well, let's get into it. So we got connected through, I, you know, I love Louisville on many levels. I've got several relationships. One of my close friends lives down there and I've gotten to know, our mutual friend, Kurt Sauter. I grew up with a, a mutual friend of ours who you're more connected to much more than I am now, Ronnie Cordray, who's doing men's ministry there at Southeast. So it's kind of fun how, and then this just kind of moved qu- pretty quickly. You were pretty easily accessible. We had a quick little phone call and here we are getting together today. So give us the right out of the gate a little bit, Chris. Tell us your come to Jesus three minute testimony of how he was drawing you and what actually took place for you to bow the knee and submit to Jesus's. Mm, well, I was raised by uh, some godly parents who, who brought me up in, in uh, the Catholic church and they, they were raised by amazing godly people as well. And so I, I had a knowledge of God. I had a faith in God. I, I wouldn't say that I had a personal relationship with Jesus until college. And I was, you know, brought to the, to the gospel and to the word by uh, athletes in action director there on campus, Dave Tegular, who asked me to attend my first Bible study when I was a freshman in college. And I was, you know, I really credit my parents that they had instilled a desire for the Lord. But, you know, I was probably six weeks on a college campus, hadn't been to church since I got there and was really feeling that void in my life. And Dave Tegular came in and offered our baseball team a, a Bible study and just asked who wanted to come. And the Holy Spirit just kind of raised my hand. I was like, mm. why is my hand up in the air right now? You know, <laughs> yeah. but Dave just was one of those guys. He's about five foot six and 150 pounds, but just a giant of a man, like just full of the spirit, such a, a shining example of salt and light that you're like, I don't know you for a second, but I would like to be around you. Mm. Um, and so I said, yes, I said yes to going to a Bible study and, you know, confess my need for the Lord in the very first Bible study I attended with him, but was not really walking with the Lord consistently, was still very much just a tunnel-visioned young baseball player who had every desire to make it to the major leagues and achieve every dream that I had. And things went pretty well on that front. Uh, I got into pro ball, and um, the Lord started working on me in a lot of different ways. I I was sharpened uh, through the uh, baseball chapel organization. That's a Protestant group that that would be basically our church every Sunday. And some awesome pastors throughout my minor league career really sharpened me. And then, you know, the Lord put teammates in my life that were disciples that were showing me the way. You know, I love I love the way the, the book of Acts talks about really Christians before they they termed the phrase Christian were called followers of the way. And there were some men in my life that kind of showed me what it looked like to follow the way of Jesus. And I was convicted that I wasn't really doing that very well. And so uh, in double A, I had a 
teammate named Anthony Acevedo that, hey, man, you, you ever read the scriptures? Mm. <laughs> like, you ever really gotten into the Word? And so I started reading the New Testament that year in 2003 and then got to the big leagues in 04 and was sharpened by men like Andy Pettit and Lance Berkman and Orlando Palmero and a number of other guys. And we had a very um, strong culture there of chapel and Bible study, Gene Pemberton, Kevin Edelbrock, some guys that really sharpened me as chaplains. And so that was, you know, I was, I got married in, in 03 to my wife and she and I were, were growing. And then we, we became members at Southeast and got baptized there at Southeast Christian church here in Louisville, Kentucky in um, February of 05. And so that was, you know, a, a big turning point, kind of Sarah and I making a decision for our family where we were going to grow our roots and and where we were going to be led and then also where we we're going to raise our family. So from there, we've been, you know, still on that journey. We got five kids and raising little ones and trying to point them to the Lord. Full life to say the least. Well, when, when you talked about, I could tell you were going down this road of mentioning names of people that impact you. I, I think a lot of people tend to be like that. It's funny in the sports world, how much people will pin things to this person at this time, this person at this place. And and you clearly do that. I, I was not surprised to hear Lance Berkman and Andy Pettit. I thought those two names would come up very quickly because you were definitely with those guys through the Astros time and Berkman and Pettit, both are guys I've heard a lot about. What What's maybe something you picked up off each one of those two guys, for instance? Well, you know, what, what I would say is sports is definitely an idol in our culture. And as somebody that has made their living and continues to make my living in the world of sports, there's a, you know, very fine line uh, sometimes of being in that world, but not of that world. And so uh, what I would say is, you know, it's a constant battle of trying not to hold sports as an idol and as a dad of athletic children to try to not do that with them either. But one thing I have to remind my wife constantly when we're on that tension between competitive sports and missing church from time to time is, you know, I was literally brought to a a personal relationship with the Lord in sports. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, it is not, it is not a savior, but it can be a powerful tool to point you to the savior and so I was fortunate to to be discipled by men like Lance and Andy. I mean, you're with them every day for eight months. Like, so you're being, we're all being discipled by something, right? But when you're around intentional Christ followers, it can be a really powerful time. And specifically for a young man who's, you know, in the world of Major League Baseball and you got money in your pocket and you got some notoriety and freedom and you can do whatever you want to do, right? To have a guy like Lance, who specifically pointed me to being rooted and established in God's truth and the word. And he really kind of got me into apologetics. And Mm. why do we believe what we believe? What's the argument to defend our faith? And Lee Strobel and reading, you know, all the books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Creator, The Case for Grace, Case for the Real Jesus, all these things that have really sharpened my faith. Uh, And then Andy was just such a, a doer of the word. Like just a great example of what it looks like out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks like just such control of his tongue, uh, such a humble man, such a faithful person and things like tithing and how he really like heard the word and then did it. Right. Um, And so that was just both of those men were, uh, you know, I, I think they were great examples in getting into the word, but then also like, how does it look practically in a guy that's, living a, a professional baseball life, but yet still married and with kids and all those different hats that that we have to wear 
so they they really sharpened me, put their arm around me, and treated me like their little brother in the faith. Wow. Well, you mentioned uh, Dave, who was your AIA staffer, who invited you to that first Bible study your freshman year at the University of Tennessee. And then, I mean, it sounds like he had a pretty profound impact with guys like him, with Andy, with Lance, others. Do you keep in touch with many of those guys today, or was that they were there and you were there kind of in the right season of life, and you did your thing with Jesus together, and it's kind of moved on to other people, or are you keeping in touch with some of those folks today? Oh, no, definitely still connected. Um, you know, Sarah and I support Teg and his uh, – Dave Tegular, we call him Teg, and, and Athletes in Action there at Tennessee and what they're doing to to make disciples. And uh, don't don't talk to him a, a ton, like, on the phone, but I, we get – you know, monthly email updates and have have some text interaction, uh, see him from time to time. But Lance and Andy and I still stay in touch quite a bit. I mean, I'm in consistent communication with both of those men and still still dear friends. It's amazing what we can do. I think we forget sometimes between text, phone calls, Zoom calls, whatever it may be. I mean, those yeah. are not ideal. It'd be. I mean, I'd rather be sitting down with you over a cup of coffee having yeah. this conversation, but we're three hours away or three and a half hours away, whatever it is, let's, let's do it this way. Now, since I tell people part of what I, my, my life is about is I left Nashville, Tennessee when I was a kid, my dad's job transferred us to Springfield, Ohio. But what, why I've stayed besides the fact I love this area is I'm a missionary to teach big 10 folks about the sec. <laughs> so can you help and plant and help build my ministry and tell them how great the sec is in general? And then about your, a little bit about your experience, baseball life in Knoxville back in the day. Well, I don't. I, I can be very loose with my tongue when it comes to Southeastern Conference arrogance, so I'm going to try to uh, not lose my witness here on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but what I would say is, uh, you know, it just means more in the SEC. I would say that uh, in a, in a lot of different regards. But yeah, I, I was. You know, I actually grew up. My parents are both from Indiana. My dad's. My mom. My, my mom's not a. She she loves it because we love it, but she's not a passionate fan of anyone school other than Tennessee now because I went there. But, you know, my parents went to Bellarmine. They love Bellarmine University. It was D2. Now it's D1 here in Louisville. But they both grew up in the state of Indiana. My dad loves Notre Dame. So, like, I wasn't an SEC guy. I really didn't didn't know much about the SEC other than just a very treetoppy kind of thing. So, you know, I was fresh eyes. And my the fall of my freshman year in 98, we won the national championship. I thought, well, this will be fun. We'll kill everybody in football. And I tell my kids all the time, like, I think when I showed up, we were in the midst of like a nine and a seven year win streak against Alabama and Georgia. Mm. Like, I, I remember the first time we lost to Alabama since I had become a fan of the of the school. I was like, we just lost to Alabama. That's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And one of my buddies was like, you know, there was a because he was lifelong Knoxvillean. He's like, you know, when I was growing up, we never beat Alabama. I was like, really? Like, they're they're not very good. Like, we've been killing them, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we finally broke that streak this year after whatever it was, 13 years or something, way too long, maybe 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 longer than that. And then Georgia, of course, now is the top dog. And there was a period of time where, you know, it never crossed my mind that we were going to lose that game from, from 98 to whatever it was, 03 or 04, 05, whenever we lost to them. Uh, so that's what's funny is I was so new to it all. But now, uh, not only having played in the league, but then you know being a diehard Tennessee fan, and and then and then I wear a totally different hat this time of year. I'm a SEC. I work for ESPN, but we spend a lot of our time in the Southeastern Conference, and so I cover college baseball for ESPN. And it, you know what's? I say this completely honestly, Jeff. I totally can put my Tennessee hat off to the side when I cover the sport. 
Mm. Like I, I really can. I, I you know, I, I matter of fact, last year I called the Tennessee Vanderbilt series, and I had Tennessee fans like literally mad at me for being a a Vanderbilt apologist. I'm like, uh, I'm calling the game. You know, like oh. if they do good, I get happy for them. If we do good, I get happy for like I just I'm calling the game, and um, so that that's actually a fun season because I truly get excited for Florida baseball hitting a home run. Like whereas in football, like yeah. there's there's none of that, right? So uh, it's a very interesting time, uh, but it's a blast covering Southeastern Conference baseball because while Big Ten fans can argue about football, uh, there's not a whole lot of argument when it comes to to the SEC and the Big Ten and, and baseball. Well, let's be honest. I don't think there's much argument in football either. <laughs> well, you go, Jeff. Uh, Do it. It's I, your I, podcast. I, yeah, I'm, I live here. I, you know, I tell people I'm a missionary. I'll take the heat. The only thing I'm willing to go to bat for on uh, social media and take much of a hit on, sometimes I'll take a little few pot shots at Ohio State and Big Ten country being around here. So That's funny. Let's jump to this. Talk about the date, Sunday, October 9th, 2005. What was significant about that date? Yeah, so I, I hit a home run that day that ended. I think I think there's been a longer game now, time wise, but I still think it's the longest innings wise, the longest playoff game in postseason history. We played the Atlanta Braves in Game Four of the NLDS, and I hit a home run in the bottom of the 18th inning to to end that game. It was one of the unique games in baseball history. It was, I think, still the only playoff game that had two grand slams in it. Adam LaRoche hit a grand slam for the Braves. And we were down six to one going to the bottom of the eighth. And Lance Berkman hit a grand slam to make it six to five. And as he likes to say, like, it was great. We were now only down a run, but they had their closer in the game, Kyle Farnsworth. And, you know, it wasn't looking good. We were down to our last out. And Brad Osmus, who I think only hit four home runs that year as our everyday catcher, hit a game-tying home run with two outs in the ninth off their closer that cleared the wall by about a foot way out in left center field. Andrew Jones was running it down and it just got over the wall to tie it up six, six. And I, I always feel guilty of that. My home run gets all the love for that because really Osmus and, you know, Brad and, and Berkman hit the, hit the two balls that made it all possible. And so we ended up playing 18 innings and the game was scoreless for the next nine innings. I entered the game as a pinch runner for Lance Berkman. Wow. Interestingly enough, I did not enter the game until the 10th inning. And uh, that is the game where Roger Clemens, I believe this is this is true, that Robert Roger Clemens made his only relief appearance in his like 23-year major league career. And he threw three scoreless innings as a 45-year-old, I think, 44-year-old. And what's crazy about that is Roger was not supposed to, you know, he was not scheduled to pitch the rest of the series. He had pitched in game two, I believe classic game where him and Smoltz went head to head. He threw like two innings of batting practice to his oldest son in like the sixth and seventh inning of that game. And in like the 14th, he went up to our manager, Phil Garner and said, Hey, uh, you know, I, my arm feels pretty good. I've been throwing batting practice to my kid. If you need me to pitch, I, I can pitch. And they were like, no, I, you know, we're, we're not going to do that. And sure enough in the 16th, they sent him in the game and the story goes that he went down, he was the only guy left. He went down to the bullpen, the only time he pitched out of the bullpen, and he threw like 10 warm-up pitches. Like, I'm good, wow. I've already thrown. And, and sure enough, here comes Roger Clements, you know, arguably the, one of the greatest right-handed pitchers in the history of the game. Uh, him, Nolan Ryan are certainly right there. And uh, 
he threw three scoreless innings and allowed me to, to have that opportunity. What's really funny, Jeff, is that the way the lineup had gone, he was batting in front of me in the batting order. Mm. And I tell people he was the first hitter, I think, of the 18th, and he was such a superhero. And I'm dead serious. Like, in worldly terms, he was about as large as life gets in Texas, especially. He had won the Cy Young the year before. He pitched even better, really, in 05. The crowd was on their feet for his whole at-bat. Like, people honestly thought he was going to hit a homer. Like, that's what a legend he was. And when he struck out, the air went out of the building. And I've had people ask me about this home run a bunch, and they're like, you know, what's it like to deal with the pressure of at-bats like that? I'm like, to be honest with you, (laughs) there wasn't much pressure. Like, everybody had just sat down. They weren't expecting much out of me. I went up there and tried to bunt the first pitch because I was going to bunt and – try to steal second base and maybe score on a single. But Joey Devine threw the first pitch to the backstop, and then he threw the next one, almost hit me with the 1-0 pitch. And on 2-0 count, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to get the head out here and see if I can hit a homer. And sure enough, wow. he threw a fastball on the inside part of the plate, and I put a good swing on it, and uh, the rest is history. So sp- special day, special moment, and I'm still uh, telling that story, which tells you what a, what a big day it was yeah. in my career. Of course, when you're 25 years old and a rookie, you think you're going to have a bunch of those moments. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that was uh, that was it, but it was a, a pretty cool postseason home run, to say the least. So on that 2 account, you literally thought, I'm going to try to give it a swing for a home run here? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, short porch in Houston. Uh, I've always been able to pull the ball well, and it's a, it was a right-handed pitcher on the mound whose fastball tend to run in towards right-handed hitters. So – he was gonna. I was certain he was gonna throw a strike and and give me an opportunity to do it. And you know that's where you know where they say uh, luck is where opportunity meets, yeah, yeah. meets preparation. Yep. And uh, you know I've I've certainly practiced that swing a million times, and I got the pitch to do it on, and and, and it all came together at the right time. And your teammates had to be loving you. Not, not, not that that wasn't just a huge win and ended that series in a divisional round, but to be done after 18. I mean, that's the tough thing about baseball. It's not like other sports where you know, okay, here's the clock. It was like you're going until you get it finished. Yeah, you know, it's the celebration is always great when you win a postseason series. But, you know, I think most everybody was fried in that oh, game. So it was more be. relief. And we were staring down John Smoltz in game five. They had already, you know, he was going to pitch game five. And so to not have to go back to Atlanta and do that was a big deal. Oh, no doubt. So, Chris, you seem like a guy who's really living kind of that John 10-10, full, abundant life. You're, you know, at least from my my knowledge – you're you're doing the baseball announce and having a blast doing that. You're coaching baseball. You're doing some team trainings. You're doing some one-on-one hitting camps, instructions with teams, all those kind of things. You're you're obviously we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but you got your foot a little bit in men's ministry world as well. Is life as good as it seems to be at this point in your life post professional sports career? Well, I, I you know, I I feel like God spoke clearly to me in my prayer life that, you know, your post playing day really you know, the, the, all of us all the time should be thinking this way, but he, he made it very clear to me, Hey, your, your, your sweet spot is when you're using your gifts for God's glory and the good of others. And the, the journey to, to kind of carve that niche has been one that I'm still on, but uh, it's evolved over the last 13 years since I've been playing. And the opportunity to stay in the game through broadcasting and coaching, and then the opportunity to walk with men through men's ministry, and then the opportunity to raise my kids and then also help coach 
my kids, but then really, honestly, more importantly, other people's kids in youth sports and to be able to maybe even coach some some parents and adults along the way through that has been very gratifying and abundant, as you would put it, uh, just to because I would say, Jeff, on this side of professional sports, uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not the only one that, that feels this way. There is a sense of why me? Sometimes you go, you know, man, there's so many people that pursue athletic careers and, you know, how the heck did I get to do that? Like, why, you know, and so you can sit in that and do whatever you want to with it. Or you could say, well, God chose me for that journey. How can I steward it well, uh, steward it well. And how can I, again, not make it an idol or or pursue the pushing of it being an idol, but say, hey, you know, look at, especially when I can look at young athletes and I can see in their eyes that I have something they want. I was able to do something they want and go, Hey man, that is a worthy pursuit only if Mm. you view it through this lens. And that is really life giving to me to be able to do that. And so as my oldest boy has gotten older and I've been able to do that with the group of kids that I get to coach through his teams, Man, it's really fulfilling. And to be able to to tie, especially team sports, to the truth of the gospel. You know, God's ways are best, and they are for our good. And they also war against our flesh Mm -hmm. um, in so many ways. But they're true in every vertical, especially in sports. You know, this idea of being selfless and this idea of being mentally and physically tough, uh, this idea of being self-disciplined and having self-control. I didn't come up with that. Like that's the gospel, right? And so to be able to show kids how that works in a team setting is just so much, it's so much fun and and, uh, so gratifying and um, been fortunate to be uh, linked, to be able to link arms with some men that hold those same truths. And uh, it's been a blast. So you talked about the lens you see this through, which is obviously the gospel. How hard is that in today's day and age? And your kids, what are the age ranges of your kids spread out over how many years? My daughter's 15. My daughter, Sydney's 15. And praise God, she was first because she's such a helper to me and my wife. But then my, I have my son Jackson's 13, Eli's 10, Lucas is seven, and Connor is about to turn five. So still four, but five next month. So you're, you're okay. You're a little bit maybe more on the the younger end of this but how does that work? Because I mean, I think that lens you're talking about and trying to allow people to walk through kind of lack of a better way to say it, a narrow gate, doing this mm. with and for Jesus, seeing everything that goes with that that's beautifully packaged and humility and teamwork and being about other people, uh, the list goes on and on. But so often it becomes anything but that. And I know, especially dealing with parents, that can be super tricky. So how do you mm. navigate that? What are what are the real challenges you see in our world with youth sports today? And like I said, I'm, I'm going to guess you lean more towards parents than you do kids on this. Well, I would say that the challenge is to try to keep the main thing the main thing. But to, to keep that main thing the main thing, you have to have an agreement and an idea of what is the main thing. Like what's I say this to my wife all the time. What's the point? Mm. Right? We're running around ragged. We got parents spending thousands upon thousands of dollars. They're tired. They're they're sometimes angry, frustrated. It's like, what what are we doing here? You know, um, and so to me, the the journey of youth sports is is really an exercise in problem solving. Okay, what 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 am I learning, and how does what is this teaching me? Yep. And the, my favorite thing as a coach and as a parent is to watch 
my kids. And when I say my kids, sometimes literally my children, but then I refer to the kids I coach as my kids as well. Like watching them solve problems is like my favorite thing. Mm. And so, okay, we got a big, strong, fast team and we're more skilled and athletic. Okay. So how do we deal with the fact that they're bigger and stronger than us? What, what's our niche? How do we win this game as in football? How do we prepare to win this game when they have this advantage? We have this advantage. Okay, what are we going to do, right? But then if it doesn't go our way, okay, what did we learn, right? Because if we learn, you know, I, I don't get, get too uh, catchphrasy here, but, you know, it's the old adage, like, you either win or you learn kind of thing. Mm. Uh, no, sometimes you get beat. Sometimes the other team's better. Sometimes you play lousy. Like, we lost. Okay, but but we're learning, hopefully, through that loss. We're learning how to deal with a loss. We're learning how to deal with playing poorly. We're learning how to deal with a team that is better at things that we need to get better at. So, you know, the, to me, that's the point. And I'm a big proponent in playing as many sports as possible. And so I kind of feel like every year it's like, okay, we've learned new lessons this year. Let's move on to the next sport. And it's going to teach us some new lessons that are really, let's be honest, kind of the same lessons, but they're just dressed in different opportunities, different skill sets, different challenges, because every sport is a little different, right? So that that's the main thing in, in the broad sense. Now, if you're looking at it through a Christian lens, okay, what is God teaching me about uh, dealing with failure? What's he teaching me about dealing with success? Uh, what's he teaching me about perseverance and taming my tongue or my uh, desire to act out because I'm frustrated at a referee or uh, a kid on the other team, or may- heck, maybe it's somebody in the crowd that has a loud mouth. Like it's there's all these opportunities to learn, mm. and and to me, that's the that's what God has taught me. Because I say, if you'd asked me that three or four years ago, Jeff, I would not be as clear in my vision. Um, and so, you know, I tell my teams all the time, I don't want to tell you how to do anything. I want to teach you how to do it, and then I want you to do it. So I'm trying to call less plays. I'm trying to do less, let's say, hard coaching. Some might call yelling. Uh, I want to do less of that. I want want you to do it, even if it's at the cost of it being ugly and messy. Like Because at the end of the day, I'm about to hand you off. I'm not going to be your coach forever. You're about to be in high school. I'm about to hand you off. And the best thing that I could have taught you is how to solve problems, how to be a member of a team, and how to try to be great in whatever role – your coach has you in. And if I can help the development of that, I can't make you do anything, but if I can help the development of that, then, and and oh, by the way, pointed you to the one who is the maker of all these truths anyway, then I've done my job. Wow. Wow. I, it's uh, interesting hearing you talk. I mean, I just, there's such a discipleship lens in and through that. And uh, I like the ways you even talk about it as your kids you know, 15 and under right now and getting ready to move on. And you say you keep referencing your kids and also calling, you know, other kids, kids mm-hmm. who are under your care that same way that you seem like a guy pretty freed up to do the handoff. Some people it's like, I can't let go. That's my kid or that's this kid I've invested in. I've got to keep staying with them all throughout. Nobody else can kind of do it like I did. And, and uh, I mean, it really seems to be a model it, show it, hand it off, let people take what you've taught them kind of mentality that you seem to have, Chris. It's very refreshing. Well, let me just say it's easier said before you've had to do it. So I'm not quite at, but that that's what I want. And at the same way with with you know my oldest, my daughter is 15. Like I don't, we're gonna cry like babies when when she when she goes to college. But like it's our job to release her 
to be salt and light wherever she goes, right? And so the reality is, as long as I'm coaching my, let's just say my oldest boy, because I'm most involved in coaching his teams, as long as I'm the one calling the shots and coaching his teams, then I, I haven't actually had to to do that. But I, I tell all of them all the time, I cannot wait to sit in the stands and just clap. Mm. Like I really am excited for that. But right now that's not where we're at. So I'm going to try to do my best. You, you do your best. And one day we'll send you out. And uh, that day's coming quickly. And then they'll hopefully see me have to do things that I try to encourage our parents to do, which is, hey, okay, if your role has changed, how can we trust coach? How can we not blame coach for our role? How can we own what our calling is? You know, my daughter is a kind of a seasonal field hockey player. She's not trying to play in college or anything like that. And I told her, I had to tell her going into her freshman year and the school she goes to is really, really, really high level field hockey. Said, baby, I literally don't care if you play a day, like start in the games. I don't care. I would love for you to challenge yourself physically and emotionally, be a part of a team, to be a part of a program that is hard. Like it's hard to be on this team, but they don't do cuts. So like, if you want to go through the work, you can be a part of this program for four years but baby, I need you to listen to me. I do not care if you play like in the game, I will come and cheer as much as I can be there. And if you don't ever enter the game, it, that piece of it doesn't bother me. I just would love for you to go through the the grind and the grit of being a part of that team. And I think that freed her up. She's like, Oh, you don't think that, you know? And I was like, no. So anyway, she, she, uh, I was super proud. She won the award of like the best teammate award this mm. year. And I was like, we couldn't have made a bigger deal of that in our home at our dinners because it's like, okay, your sister's not the leading scorer on this field hockey team by any means, but she made enough of an impact yep. on the coaching staff that they chose to get, give her this award for how she was a bright light at practice. Like that, you talk about using your gifts well for God's glory and the good of others. Like, you know, they're all different. I've got five of them. Some of them, are, they're wired and packaged differently. Like, but she – she was very faithful to what God's called her to, regardless of how elite her skill is or not is in that sport. So just really proud of the way she's shining her light. And, you know, that's that's the calling for all of us, wh wherever God has us. That's so cool. My middle son had a similar experience in soccer this year and, you know, playing time wise and other things, it kind of felt like maybe he could have, should have got more or whatever than when he got that award at the end of the year. My, mm. wife, my wife and I were like, man, this is probably the greatest award we've ever seen one of our four kids get. And other ones have gotten one more for athletic achievement or ability or whatever. But like somehow seeing where he stuck it out, went through some challenges, had a health issue for part of the season. Mm. And it was like, man, this, this, it couldn't get any better. So I, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, teaching our kids to hang in there and again what is okay dad you want me to do this well why what's for what yeah. right for what well for what is time management being coached pushing yourself physically and emotionally learning how to cheer for others like going through the process of learning new skills like all that stuff like that's really the point now if you happen to have a kid who's really talented there's nothing wrong with pushing them to find their ceiling in a sport yeah but just making sure that we're constantly, you know, trying our best to point to the why. Okay, what's the point? And if it's just a college scholarship, like if that if that's the whole point, well, okay, what happens when you get that scholarship? Was is that it? Yeah. Have I arrived? You know, so just trying to point the things to actually the the characteristics that last way past because everybody has the day where somebody taps them on the shoulder and says, "You don't get to play anymore." Yeah. So what did what really would we have learned through that process? That's what I'm trying. I'm, I fail at it, but I, I'm trying to 
keep that lens through the whole process. Yeah, that's funny. I, I tell my my one son especially like playing time, reaching your full ability. You know, all those kind of things have their place. Working hard, practicing after hours, all that kind of stuff has its place. Being a good teammate, being a guy who is the first up out of the bench to go cheer guys on if you're sitting out for a few minutes or whatever. But I said, really, this is all about you becoming further along as a disciple of Christ. That's what all this is about. So mm-hmm. let me ask you a question. So we both know Bob Russell. I guess he would have been your pastor at some point. Yeah, baptize me. Yep. There you go. Okay, so Kyle Eidelman is now, Dave Stone before that, now Bob Russell. And I know Bob uh, and, and Judy made a really intentional effort to say Louisville, Kentucky is our home. We can maybe mm. do whatever, but for us, and he talks about it in his one book, we've had conversations about this, that they said, you know what, we want to have deep roots. Have you and Sarah made some sort of similar decision with your family with Louisville, Kentucky and Southeast and everything you have going for you there? Yeah, and I think our church does a great job of you know, it's a huge church, right? One of the biggest churches in the world, but they do a really good job of promoting small groups, like get in, serve, and then the church feels so much smaller, right? So early on, I was tapped on the shoulder by by Rick McIntyre, who's was the men's pastor. Now Ronnie Cordray is. Of course, Kurt Sauter was before Rick, mm-hmm. all friends of yours. I don't know if you know Rick, but no, two of the three Rick, are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Anyway, and and so when they tapped me on the shoulder to do that, that allowed me to start serving and and leading within that vertical of the church, and things became a lot more personal, right? Instead of just consuming on a mm. on a Sunday morning, it was like, how am I serving? How am I leading? How am I being led on a, in a much more personal? How am I being known in a much more personal way? And of course, Bob was great at that with his Sunday uh, Saturday morning men's Bible study. He wasn't just there on Sunday. He was there on Saturday morning and and led and and obviously wore a lot of different hats as that church grew, but you know Sarah's obviously through our child the the young child raising years uh, she she's been in and out of women's ministry there at church but now is is back in and leading the table there with the women's ministry and to me the growing roots part was modeled by my parents like they they were so involved and active at their church they just really always found ways to say yes to to going a little further uh, with whatever they were uh, involved with. And so that was modeled very well to me. They're still, they still model it amazingly well mm. in so many different ways. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think serving and then also building, you know, Ronnie, uh, our men's pastor always, he has this phrase, where he says, you know, you can, uh, he stole it from somebody else. So it's not his, but yeah. you can uh, impress from afar, but you can only influence from up close and personal. Amen. And I think being known and allowing and then getting to know others has been a huge part of my journey post playing days. Cause when you play, when you're a professional athlete, you sometimes have this guard up that like everybody wants something from you. Mm. And so you keep your circle real tight and you only want to be known by a couple. And once you get out in the world and you realize, man, there is so many beautiful people that I can learn from and be sharpened by. And then you allow yourself to be known by others. That's been a big part of just doing life with people in my post-playing days. Awesome. Well, Louisville's a great city, like I said. So neat that you're going to do it with people in and around my world of people I know down there. So mm-hmm. let's let's hit these rapid five questions super quick. These are just kind of quick hitting, nail it quickly and move on kind of questions. A little, sure. little light. So, yeah. Chris, what's your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Lucky Charms. That answer's been given a lot. That's a that's okay. a popular one. What is your favorite book you most like to or would want to gift to other people? The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. 
Okay. Well, you you it sounds like you've read quite a few of his books from what you said mm-hmm. earlier. Okay. Yep. Good movie as well. Yes. Let's say your family's heading out on vacation and your your kids are at that perfect age where you're heading out and you're going, let's say, west and you plan on hitting the right stop for the bathroom and for the restaurant. And then all of a sudden, somebody's got to go to the bathroom like 10 minutes too early. And you're like, oh, I'm not stopping again. And let's pretend these three restaurants all appeared on the exit <laughs> sign. McDonald's, okay. Chick-fil-A, In-N-Out Burger. Where would Team Burke go? Oh, I mean, it's just not even... Chick Fil A, and there's if I've got to if I've got to explain that, then we'll we'll have another conversation some other time. So In and Out doesn't even stand a chance, huh? <laughs> you know, I don't. I've never even had an In and Out burger, so I, that that that's uh, that just shows you how cultured I am. I've driven by plenty, but really? I'm always I'm a I'm a chicken guy, so I'm always going to okay. go chicken. There you go. So, yeah. All right. Well, if, if, maybe somebody In and Out Burger will listen to this and they'll they'll send you some coupons and uh, pay for okay. it to be sent to you or something like that. So yeah, I have to get out west. That's right, Chris. Whether it's you by yourself or you with Sarah on a Friday night, you're you were doing old school flipping channels and you stumble across this movie. What movie is this movie that you would get sucked into and you got to watch it every time? A few good men. I'll tell you what you you are mowing down these questions. You aren't thinking about them at all. You've You've got them ready to go. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You bask in the in the <laughs> freedom with which I provide or that I provide, and then question the manner in which I provide it. I I absolutely love that movie. You were on it, man. And then lastly, who was your first celebrity crush? Um, maybe Kelly from Saved by the Bell. K- Kelly Kapowski, Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Her answer's been given before, and I always say. Tiffany Amber Thiessen has aged very well. She she was one. She was kind of cutesy back then, but she's aged very well. So, I'll take your word for it. I, I, I don't know that, but I, I watched 8 million Saved by the Bell episodes, so yeah. I'll go there. Yeah, my daughter I'll watched Burnett, the show. so that works. There you go. My daughter watched a show she was the mom in on uh, Nickelodeon or something like that, or Disney. So she's she's seen okay. a, some TV show that Tiffany Amber Thiessen plays the mom in, so... Well, Chris, gotcha. we got to wrap it up. This is uh, this is the time we allotted for for you and you for me. And I think there needs to be a plan B because we got through less than half the questions. We had such, <laughs> you had some great content, and I loved your heart. And uh, sometime when I'm down there hanging out with Kurt or my buddy Landon or Bob, yeah, Russell, let's get some lunch. I would love to grab time with you. So absolutely, it sounds like a blast. I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for having me on. And. You know, I I don't know exactly what's your target audience here. What what's who are we well, talking it's, to? It's kind of men in the men's uh, world since we're dealing with you know small business owners, nonprofit heads, people. Mm. As we you know, our tagline for the gathering is connecting men to men and men to God. So there's a sense that that's true here. But you know, because we have a wide variety of types of platform guests, you know, we can get all types on here listening. So. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I would I would just say that, you know, I, my podcast with Jimmy Dykes, the Coach Mail podcast, hopefully we got some commonality with our with our listeners. And I would just say to to those of you listening to the sound of my voice that if there's one thing that I could close with is God's ways are best. So I would just just take him up on that and 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 trust that and and watch the good fruit uh, from it, because um it's one of the beautiful things that I get to witness in the lives of so many of the men that I'm fortunate to be sharpened by. And uh, you know a lot of them well. So Amen. thanks for your time, brother. Well, I look forward to part part B on this. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Have a great day. Appreciate it very much, Chris. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at the Gathering of the Miami Valley. 
Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.